Welcome again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. I'm Paul Wilkinson, the Adult Minister Groups Associate at the Brentwood Campus. And we're here prepping for the Palm Sunday text, which is Exodus 12, 1 through 16. That's what will be taught by the teaching pastors. The means of evacuation, Passover, in the background text that we teachers will be responsible for is Exodus 11 through 12. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. While only one major thing happens in chapters 11 through 12 of the Exodus, which is the last plague, the killing of the firstborn, because of the significance for Passover, you have an opportunity to go very deeply here. Uh, with your groups about how that ties to Christ. It's going to be a Lord's Supper Sunday this week, which always means the sermons are a little bit shorter, uh, a little more uh, maybe 30,000 foot view. So we can take that opportunity to really handle the entire text. I know sometimes I encourage you to handle the parts around what the teaching pastors are going to talk about, but this one, I think anything's fair game. Even the Exodus twelve one through sixteen that the that your teaching pastor is going to teach on, but obviously the connections are pretty straightforward between the Passover, um, the Passover lamb, and then Jesus. Nevertheless, I, I want to start with you in chapter eleven and talk about midnight, and secondarily, I want to talk to you about the favor found by the Israelites, from the Egyptians. So first, it might seem strange at midnight, and and you know I've been pushing you the last number of weeks to help your group set the cultural and historical context, and to a lesser extent, the literary context, but really the historical and cultural context. And we have another opportunity to do that here, where when we read midnight, we think, okay, the new day starts, maybe it's something about this transition from the the one day to the next but in the ancient near east midnight was just the darkest time it was considered the um the the most absence of light the deepest dark that there was so for the destroyer to show up at this time and take the firstborn will tie that darkness with the evil and the loss that egypt was going to endure uh, with respect to their firstborn being taken so help make that corrective. They they didn't count the way we did. They don't count days the way we count them. They don't count time the way we count them. And we always got to remind our people that we're a few millennia removed from the stories we read about. And helping find that historical cultural context can help in, enliven the, the story for our people and help make it more real. Secondly is this concept of favor amongst neighbors. This is something that I I didn't understand um, for a really long time, that God can predispose people to us and for us as we're obedient to our calling. And, and I think this does happen in, in modern times, but I think it's something we ought to be praying for. It's something we ought to be asking for, 
Remember, part of the genesis of all of this is that God finally heard his people crying out in Israel. Uh, So for whatever the trigger was there, the people may have been crying out for some time, but God chose to act on it in, in this moment through Moses. And you think about the timing of Moses. So he's 80 when this is happening. And God had to predispose Pharaoh's daughter to take Moses and receive him into the family predisposed Jethro and his daughters to receive him into the family, predisposed with the help of miraculous signs to the Israelites when he returns to Egypt. And then um, now he's predisposing the Egyptians to the Israelites in order to give them wealth as they leave. And I've seen this happen in a number of places in my life. Uh, The one that, that sort of pops in the front of my mind first is when I worked at Tennessee State University in their chemistry labs as I was finishing up my PhD work. And for a chemical engineer to, uh, which was what I was previously, but to apply for the job I applied for, which really only required a a high school diploma, um, it made no sense that they trusted me. It made no sense for them to hire me because it would have appeared to them as if I was just biding my time till something better came along but I told them I would give them three to five years minimum three maximum five ended up being four and a half and for whatever reason the Lord predisposed them to me and I made a couple of blunders the first week on the job that I remember um, getting confused about which class was where and which professor needed what prepped in the laboratory so he could teach the lab the lab um, to the students and they didn't care they were excited to have me and proud of the work I was doing and very encouraging to me so it's like the lord um sort of tilled the soil there so that they would receive me well i think in some ways um brentwood baptist has has been that way for me um if you if you know me you probably wouldn't think i'd be the first fit um first on the local church level having only been trained as an academic but then secondly maybe not so much in brentwood in Williamson County. Nevertheless, I mean, the church has received me well and has been very gracious to me as I've learned and developed. And I, I think, one, we can think about this in that way. What communities is the Lord predisposing us to so that they will receive us well with the gospel? So for me, at first, it was Tennessee State, and a lot of ministry happened there. Um, not official ministry, because I worked for the state, capital S, of course. I wasn't going to go in and proselytize when I was under their authority. Nevertheless, conversations happened as students would ask me what I do and so forth. Um, and then, of course, the ministry that happens on, on the Brentwood campus for me in particular. But likewise, um, I want to challenge, are you praying? Are you praying for your groups to be predisposed to what you have to share with them? Are you praying that your heart be predisposed to what the Lord's going to teach you? Are you praying for the communities to which you're called, whether it's a, a some other ethnic group or like we like to talk about crossing cultures, whether it's a socioeconomic crossing or a racial crossing or whatever it is, if you're called to cross a culture with the gospel for the sake of the gospel, are you praying that they be predisposed to you, uh, your neighbors, your own neighborhood, people at your workplace that maybe are not believers yet, are you praying that their hearts be predisposed to your explicit actions as Christians and whatever message you might share with them about the gospel. 
We need to be praying. We as teachers need to be praying that constantly. We need to be praying it in front of our group members because we're the model for our group members. So chances are if we don't value those things, because we would get the most talking time, right? Presumably in our groups you get 30 to 40 minutes of teaching time. So you talk more than anyone. And if you're not setting the proper model of praying for the lost to be predisposed to you, uh, praying for opportunity for you to be a kingdom person, uh, then your groups are less likely to do it in their own personal life. So be that model and share your prayers with them. And if you're not praying about those things, I, I pray you do so. So we look at verse 9 of chapter 11, and the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And I know on the Brentwood campus Sunday, the 18th, that Mike really pushed hard this idea that um, God was right, just, and within his bounds to harden Pharaoh's heart and turn Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own sin. Nevertheless, we have another opportunity to share with our groups about how that um, how that justice fits together, how we can still consider God all-loving as Ezekiel, Timothy, I'm talking about the books, Ezekiel, Timothy, and Peter all say God desires all men to be saved. Presumably that would include Pharaoh. Nevertheless, Pharaoh seems to uh, be hardened by God, which would make it look like he doesn't want to save him. Uh, so one, a number of episodes ago, we talked about, let's think of election in terms of the nation from whom Messiah would be birthed, not in terms of personal individualistic salvation. But I want to add another thing here. And it comes up in apologetics, uh, particularly with with a lot of young people and college-age students, is this idea, and, and sadly it comes from within the church as well, particularly some of your more liberal strains of theology, is why God would give a infinite, give an infinite punishment to a finite crime. That is to say that over this whatever average lifespan, 80 years, we commit some set finite number of sins, yet we get all eternity separated from God. Uh, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right, good, or just from God. So some of the alternatives are purgatory, that we really don't get separated eternally. We get separated for a season as we're purged of our wickedness. The Roman Catholics would say our venial sins, because if you die in mortal sin, it's straight to hell you go. But um, if you die in venial sin, then you'll be purged of that over some finite amount of years. And then you'll be accepted into paradise with God. Uh, some modern evangelicals have pushed the idea of something like purgatory, but they don't call it that. Where maybe like the sum total of all the sins require a set payment. It may be a really, really long one, like two million years of payment for the sin. Yet once that is completed, then you'll be accepted into the new heavens and new earth um, in the in the immediate presence of the triune Godhead. But I think the pushback is twofold on that. And we can say the same thing here for Pharaoh in verse 9 as a microcosm of it. One is that the trespass is finite. Yes, the sin is finite. It happened in a moment and then it's over. But the trespass, well, let me say it this way. The person against whom the trespass occurred is infinite. That is to say that the crime was committed against the perfect Lord. Um, so maybe an infinite punishment does make sense since the uh, victim, so to speak, and this would be an infinite perfect God. But secondly, and I think this is the more important part for how we help our people understand Pharaoh and his wickedness and his hard-heartedness, is that I don't see any biblical warrant, I don't see any biblical warrant anywhere 
for assuming that people stop sinning once they're in hell. Uh, so I consider most of the language in the Bible to be figurative about hell. I understand hell as separation from God where right now God has common grace. That is to say it reigns on the just and the unjust. So God is actually restraining evil in light of all the suffering we still see in the world. God is actually restraining it and holding it back and tempering the wickedness of humanity in order to maximize his kingdom and get people saved. So hell is when God stops that, when God doesn't temper or hold back um, any any of the sinner is anymore and it's just free range wild west everyone sinning against everyone so i am apt to think just philosophically because again i don't think the bible talks about it my assumption is that these people just continue to sin forever and it does say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord but that's not to submit oneself to christ's lordship that's just to admit the truth of it And Satan will admit the truth of it, and yet he still hates him and still rebels against Christ. And likewise, I would say for everyone who dies in an unregenerate state, uh, as an unbeliever, not accepting the lordship of Christ, there is no reason to think that after death they will all of a sudden accept the lordship of Christ. So I don't think that the punishment against these people is necessarily infinite. I think that they just sin forever. So So they keep themselves constantly separated from the triune godhead well it's no different here with pharaoh pharaoh continued to sin he continued to double down on his sin and so when the lord would harden pharaoh's heart again it wasn't as if pharaoh was actually repentant pharaoh just wanted the pain to stop and we can see when after he lets the people go still goes out after them still goes to get them still doesn't reject his own conception of himself as deity still doesn't reject the egyptian gods um and and repent for being an idolater he doesn't do any of that sort of stuff so i think pharaoh was much like the sinners in hell where they, he just keeps going he just he just doesn't stop sinning uh, so i think the lord is right and just and good to continue to use pharaoh for the purpose of reconciling a people to himself and and liberating his own people You get a really intense description of the lamb and the Passover feast days. Um, You could elaborate on any of that stuff. You can certainly track any of the feasts to Jesus practicing that same feast in the New Testament. So like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you'll get more about that in Deuteronomy 16. Um, But then also you see Jesus participating in these same sort of feasts. So two quick ways that we can tie Christ to this passage in Exodus is one, the obvious, the obvious one is to talk about Jesus as the Passover lamb, because that is the way that the New Testament talks about Jesus. So two things that I'll take from our our Lifeway researcher that partners with the church before we talk about um, Jesus's relationship to Passover are some famous Passovers from the text and some key biblical events regarding the Passover. So you could you could take a walk through these. Maybe your lesson for that day is to say, hey, let's see the Passover played out repeatedly in the history of God's people and in the church. So first, Joshua leads Israel through the Jordan. 
and into the promised land during the feast, and that's in Joshua 4.19. Certainly you get the two Jesus instances where Jesus rides in um, on the donkey in John 12, and then Jesus was slain during the days of the Passover feast in John 18.28. Paul embraces the idea of the Passover feast as it relates to Jesus' death, and he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5.7-8. That Peter identifies Jesus as a lamb without blemish in 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. And then that Jesus is presented as the Passover lamb in Revelation five twelve in one of the most incredible passages in all the Bible as Jesus comes into the throne room. And so here's some other famous Passovers uh, recorded in the scripture. I'm just going to read the whole paragraph as I have it here before me. Seven famous Passovers are recorded in Scripture to have been kept. The first was kept by Israel in Egypt, and this is the one in our text for today. The second they kept in the wilderness, Numbers 9. The third, which Joshua kept with Israel in coming into Canaan, 5.10, Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. The fourth in the reformation of Israel by King Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 30. The fifth under King Josiah, Second Chronicles 35. The sixth by Israel returned out of the captivity of Babylon, Ezra 6.19. The seventh, that which Jesus desired so earnestly and did eat with his disciples before he suffered. And that's in Luke 22.15 and following. Um, At which time that legal Passover had an end and our Lord's Supper came in the place. The memorial of Christ, our Passover sacrificed for us. And so um, a powerful lesson might be to say, uh, and I'll, again, I'll trace this into our our existence now as a regenerate people, uh, ransomed and paid for and now living with the kingdom life and dwelt by the Spirit, and say, what does that mean for us then in our experience as New Testament believers? Well, as we track it through Joshua being delivered into Canaan, Jesus being delivered as the sacrifice to redeem everyone, Paul coming to understand um, Jesus as the Passover lamb, Peter understanding Jesus as Passover lamb, seeing our Lord Jesus as victorious in Revelation 5, and then tracking through the other seven famous ones uh, throughout the text, is to say that we are living on the revealed promised side of that feast. That is to say that we've seen the resurrected Christ. That's what makes us believers. Uh, Romans ten six. We've confessed with our mouths Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts the Father raised him from the dead. Uh, thus, we have seen the Passover Lamb die, but we've seen him raised again. So we have tasted of the promise of the Passover, in that God has promised to pass over us for all of eternity, in so far as we're found in the person and work of Christ, and that gives us a great hope uh, for our future. And it should give us a great boldness in the moment to share our faith and to disciple others well, disciple the lost and searching. So, man, it might, might be a great lesson to walk through all these different Passovers in the text and then tie that to the fact that we are experiencing sort of a perpetual infinite Passover in the once for all person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so it's worth stopping for a minute to talk about whether, or not whether, that's the wrong way to say it, to talk about the statement of fact in the scripture of Jesus' sinlessness. Um, so I'm going to share this. This comes from Riken's work, 
a great handbook for the Bible, um, if you can get a hold of it. Or just call me and I'll show it to you. I have it in my office and it's a great, it's a great text to have as a resource. But here's what he says. For Jesus to be our Passover lamb, he had to meet God's standard of perfection. Back during the Exodus, the Passover lamb had to be physically flawless. In the case of Jesus, the perfection God required was moral. Jesus had to be utterly sinless. The Bible is careful to show that this was indeed the case. By virtue of his virgin birth, his nature was free from the corruption of original sin. Nor did Jesus commit any actual transgressions. Peter said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 The book of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Um, Hebrews 4.15 Chapter 4 Verse 15, even Pontius Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him. John 19 and verse 6, Jesus was morally perfect. Therefore, when it came time for him to die, it was an innocent victim. He offered himself unblemished to God. Hebrews 9.14, Hebrews uses the word unblemished because the writer was thinking of the kind of sacrifice that God required in the Old Testament, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. So as you're unpacking the the text there in chapter 12 about the Passover lamb, we can tie that directly to Jesus in 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 4, uh, Hebrews 9, and then also John 19. But if you choose to do that with your people, you may get the challenging question about whether Jesus was ever authentically tempted. So the Bible says clearly that Jesus was tempted in every way, Hebrews 4.15 Nevertheless, he was without sin. And so oftentimes the way this question will come, and this question is usually an in-house question. I've actually, um, I can't remember a single unbeliever ever asking me this, but I've had lots of believers ask me this. Could Jesus be authentically tempted? That is to say, could Jesus have sinned if he wanted to? Could Jesus have sinned if he had wanted to? Um, I answer no to that. I don't think Jesus could have sinned. I think it was impossible. Reason being is because I think that essential goodness is a perfection. God must be perfectly good, capital G. Uh, Therefore, he can't actually sin. So if Jesus is truly divine, and part of that divinity is that um, one cannot sin, then Jesus could not have sinned. Nevertheless, Jesus was completely tempted in every way, just as we are. And so how do we reconcile all of that? Well, a guy named Tom Marsh wrote a book called The Logic of God Incarnate. The Logic of God Incarnate by Tom Morris. It's a philosophy book. Um, I think it's accessible. I'm not telling you to rush out and buy it. uh, But but I do think it's accessible. Um, Morris was a a great thinker. Unfortunately, he doesn't do philosophical theology anymore. Still does philosophy, just not in the church. Um, but he, he, he made a great thought exercise that helps us think through how Jesus could have not sinned, even had he wanted to, nevertheless, he could be authentically tempted. All right, so let me set up this thought exercise as best I can, because I'm doing this from memory, so I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to say it just like he did, but it'll, it'll be close enough to make the point. And so let's say you're offered some extravagant sum of money to participate in a psychological experiment. So you're going to be the guinea pig, but you're going to get paid handsomely for it. And so what the 
psychiatrist or psychologist, whoever do these sort of things, what they do to you is they put you into a room with no windows and one door. And um, they tell you that you are to stay in this room all night. And if you stay in the room all night and you don't leave, then you get the money. If you flee whatever fears they're going to introduce into this room, uh, well, then you lose all the money. You forfeit all of that. And so here you are sitting in this room and they begin to inundate the room with whatever you're afraid of. Maybe it's images of snakes or spiders or maybe you're scared of the dark or something or they do some illusion and make the room feel smaller and so it's claustrophobia and you want to get out of there. Whatever the case is, they make the room such that you desperately want to flee. Now, unbeknownst to you, they actually locked the door. So remember, there are no windows, and now the door is locked, but you don't know that. So you couldn't get out, even if you wanted to get out. And yet, in your mind, because you believe the door is unlocked, you are sitting there in the midst of all of this fear coming at you, asking yourself if the money is worth it, or should you just go through that door and get out. All right? So we had the same exact situation as Christ. Here you are, um, tempted to leave the room because the fear is overwhelming, yet the prize was so valuable that you endure it. But unbeknownst to you, you couldn't have gotten out of the room even if you wanted to because the door had been locked. So you couldn't leave even if you wanted to leave. Well, same with Christ. The prize of obedience to the Father and the reconciliation of the world to the triune Godhead and the glorification of the resurrected Son was so powerful and so alluring and so utterly amazing that it was worth enduring the temptation of sin, even though unbeknownst in a sense, quote-unquote, in a sense to Christ, he couldn't have sinned even if he wanted to. And yet it wasn't that that kept him from sinning. It was the beauty and the majesty of obedience to the Father that kept him from sinning. So something like that. Um, that book, again, is called The Logic of God Incarnate by Tom Morris. Really good stuff. So I think the, the obvious way to track the blood on the doorpost with respect to the Passover where the Israelites were spared would be just to tie that directly to the Lord's Supper as um, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. So in Matthew twenty six twenty six, we get the Lord's Supper when he's instituting this and his blood represents the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, likewise, that's directly tied back to the doorpost where the blood of the Passover lamb was poured out for the sake of the Israelites being passed over. And that is to be saved from the destroyer in the sense of that localized moment. This is to be saved from the white throne judgment. That is, we can find ourselves in the perfect presence of the triune Godhead forever and ever. And of course, you could get the same story, the institution of the Lord's Supper from Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. You could go to Mark 14, 22. Or of course, you could tie it back to um, John chapter 6. And Jesus is teaching there that his flesh must be eaten and his blood must be um, consumed for those to have redemption in Messiah. The last thing that I want to talk about is 
that the Israelites were subject to the same punishment as the Egyptians with respect to the destroyer. In other words, had a Hebrew family been disobedient and not put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost um, and their door frames, etc., then they would have been they would have lost the firstborn, just like the Egyptians lost the firstborn. So it's always good to remind our people that we too are in rebellion against God. That the primary difference between us and them, I mean, there's lot there's lots of differences between believers and unbelievers, but the biggest one is that the believer has submitted himself and or herself. To the Lordship of Christ. Um, that is to say. That is to say. When they face God at the final judgment. Christ will be seen. And judged on our behalf. And found innocent. Whereas God will see the unbeliever. Trapped and mired. In all of the unbelievers sin. Because they are not in Christ. So the distinction really isn't about us. The distinction is about. Us in Christ. The distinction about is whether we or not we are found to be in the company of the person and work of Jesus. And it's a good, it's just always a good reminder. All of society, particularly the Western society, by which I mean Europe, U.S., Canada, all of it is to say that we have value. It's to say that we are the most significant thing, that our desires, feelings, etc., are are the most important aspects of life. And the Bible rails against that mentality. It says, no, uh, God is. <laughs> I mean, think about the I am statement from Exodus 3. God is. And anything that you are stems only from that. Whatever worth or value you have comes because you were created by God. Because God seeks to have a relationship with you. And on and on it goes. So the the core theme of the Christian life and Christian living is just antithetical and repugnant to the contemporary Western culture in which we find ourselves. A culture full of subjectivism. That is to say that I am the master of my own thoughts, meanings, value, and worth. They come out of me. They're not given to me from the outside. Relativism, that is to say, I do what's right in my own eyes or in my community's own eyes, independent of anything transcendent outside of this naturalistic box. And pluralism, that is to say that everything is equally valid, that there is no fundamental truth, there is no binding absolute authority on any of it. So subjectivism, relativism, and pluralism, those are the idols of the day. And the Bible says, no, God is... And insofar as you have anything um, redeemable about yourself is going to be because you're tied in close relationship to that being. Nothing um, in and of yourself, nothing from within yourself, self-contained. So may we live that kind of life. Um, May we be reminded that the Israelites were not exempt from judgment except through their obedience to what God has asked them to do. Likewise, we as believers, may we become more obedient and so radically unique and different from the culture that they have no choice but to look at us and say, that life looks really good. I need to, I need to go find out what that's all about. <laughs>